Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on the Art Hour. And together with us today, we have Joe Baring, which is the director of Ingram Collection. Joe, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. The pleasure is ours. And Joe, what is the Ingram Collection? So the Ingram Collection is named after a man called Chris Ingram, who describes himself as a serial entrepreneur and philanthropist. He had his own business in advertising called Chris Ingram Associates, which he sold back in 2001. And he'd always been really interested in art and is the first to say he's completely obsessive. 
So once he sold his business, he had both the time and the money to really build a very serious art collection. And what he really wanted to do was not buy one or two, say, big impressionist pieces. He wanted to go into a period very, very deeply and find out a lot about it. So he fell in love with the period of art that's known, known as modern British art, 20th century British art. And he was at a Sotheby's view and he uh, asked one of the people who worked at Sotheby's, you know, what is this art? I absolutely love it. And they said it's 20th century British art. And at that time it was incredibly unfashionable. And they said you could build up a very serious collection. And, and that's what he did. So now the collection has about 650 works of art within it, of which the core is still that modern British art. But there, we've ventured into other areas of collecting as well. And uh, when exactly Chris Ingram started uh, his collection? How long ago? Well, he really, so he sold the business back in 2001 and he started collecting in about 2002 and is just uh, a kind of a really old-fashioned collector and that he's not really interested in the financial aspect of it, so art is investment, but it's really kind of just the deep love for art. And also that, that kind of goes... Um, uh, into our contemporary talent the buy, that the we also buy contemporary works. And that, again, it's not about art for investment or trying to pick out the next Tracy Emin or Damien Hurst. It really is going around the degree shows, finding art that speaks to us, that moves us, that, that we want to buy. Okay, that's quite interesting to see uh, how private is this private collection. And well, I know because, yes, yes you, I, I, I've seen the collection moving uh, a lot around uh, with loans and... That's right. It's, so it's not really a private collection. So it mm. started out as a private collection. But Chris, as, a, as I said earlier, he's a, he's a philanthropist. And mm. part of that is creating this collection to make it publicly accessible to people. So there's a huge amount of our public art that is stored in um, uh, you know, storerooms up and down the country that is owned by the public but never really seen, and which is a terrible shame. And also there's obviously private collectors who buy these incredible museum quality works of art, which are again, never seen because they're locked up in stores somewhere. So for us, it was incredibly important that we showcase these works of art. And I suppose that also comes from a purely practical point of view, because if you're still buying, where are you gonna put them? Mm-hmm. It's completely tragic to have them all in store. And he didn't really want to be one of those people that built his own art gallery when there are all these incredible regional museums out there that do great things, that have wonderful um, local programs encouraging residents to come in, educational programs. So that's the way that we've gone, is that we work with the big names in London. You know, we've lent to the Royal Academy and Dulwich and people like that, but we're also very interested in working regionally, so sharing the collection. Mm-hmm. What is the collection consisting most of in terms of media so you focus on your sculpture painting a little bit of everything um, yeah it's a little bit of everything but we're not we're not very strong on photography but what we are particularly strong on is sculpture mm. so and this is in terms of storage is getting even more that's complicated the problem, exactly because store <laughs> yes that's right so we've got the ingram sculpture gallery at the Lightbox in woking and again that's come out of a practical point because what's the point of having sculpture stored in a storeroom when you can have it um in the galleries so you have your there is a private gallery which is open to the public no well no it's not so so the light box is the light box is a museum and gallery in Woking mm-hmm. and Chris is born and bred in Woking so he's a local mm. boy so the story around the relationship with the light box is that he as I said he was building up this incredible collection it was at that time in storage and he was saying to himself this is tragic I'm a really tragic person that I'm buying all this art and it's going into store and I find that really difficult to deal with what can I do about that 
And at that time, they were fundraising to build the light box, um, which actually won the first Art Fund Museum of the Year prize back in 2008. So they were fundraising for that. And he had a conversation with the chief exec of the local council, who thought, well, obviously, we'll have a conversation with Chris Ingram about this, because potentially he might be able to help us get this project off the ground. At that point, Chris felt that he had done a lot for Woking, but he had what he calls his light bulb moment, where he thought, you know, I've got this incredible museum quality collection in store you're building an art gallery with no permanent collection, we should do something together. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want to do, is actually become really at the forefront of how private people can work with public institutions and what that looks like now in the 21st century. So it's no longer about potentially gifting your collection once you die or gifting the collection during your lifetime and then you don't have any control over it or what happens to it. So Chris really wants to enjoy the collection, but also let other people enjoy it too. So we loan it to the light box and it's on a rolling loan. But we, as we've grown, but also as the light box's reputation has grown, they do things with other people and we now do the majority of our loans outside the light box. So there is a curator who who is working on on putting uh, shows and exhibitions on a rolling basis within a year at yes, the light so box? I, I work with the team at the light box. So there's a a couple of curators at the light box that we work with but yes we're very involved in the in the Ingram collection shows that are put on at the light box absolutely mm-hmm. why van morrison yes. <laughs> well van morrison so both my parents are irish and i grew up listening to van all the time it just reminds me of my parents makes me really happy and and loads of lovely holidays in ireland and it just every time and it was really hard for me to pick my favorite van morrison song to be honest i couldn't if you'd picked it if you'd asked me on a different day it would have been a different van morrison song but always van first okay and let's go to paolo nutini and candy and then back with uh, joe barring I was perched outside in the pouring rain Trying to make myself a seal Then I'll float to you, my darling With the evening on my tail Although not the most honest means of travel It gets me there nonetheless I'm a heartless man at worst me Just give me some candy before I go Oh darling, I'll kiss your eyes and lay you down on your rug Just give me some candy after my hug For I'm often found explaining but the hurt plays out all the same I've taken quite enough While I'm some stained here on your bed sheet You're my diamond in the rough Darling, I'll bathe your skin I'll even wash your clothes Just give me some candy Before I go Oh, darling, I'll kiss your eyes And leave you down 
Just give me some candy after my Joe Barring, uh, and Joe, you mentioned that the the way of collecting is more about love, about the arts, a specific period of time which extends to contemporary British art. What are the selection criteria? So it's something that you see and yes, speaks so to your heart, something uh, that speaks to your mind. Um, how does it work? And also, before, um, is it if is only Chris collecting uh, for the collection? You collect as well. And how do you know if your taste is matching or not? Because with private collections, that's always a uh, you know how much uh, the taste uh, is matching. And it's a really interesting question, actually, about um, the nature of, say, art advisors working with private collectors. And I think you have to have a very honest relationship. And I also think there has to be some chemistry there because you actually need to be able to say, no, I think you're wrong or okay, I, I see why you like that, but this is why you shouldn't buy it for these reasons. So so I think that within those questions that you asked me, I think, first of all, Chris, the, the way that we, our acquisitions policy has definitely changed in that we now do have an acquisitions policy. So at the beginning, it was very much Chris buying what he loved, what he liked, what spoke to him. He'd go in, he says he knows within two seconds whether he likes it or not and whether it speaks to him. And then really, I suppose it's then my job to think, okay, well, you like that, but let's look at the condition. Let's look at the price. Let's think what's the provenance of this? Is it right? Is it authentic? All those sorts of due diligence things. Um, and also within that now, what we're asking ourselves when we're buying is how is this going to fit into the collection? Because as I mentioned at the beginning, the collection's got 650 works of art in it now. And there really is no point buying something that isn't going to be shown. So, so we now also get presented with a lot of things because people know the Ingram collection. So people send us lots of things and we think, well, actually... Is that going to fit into our sculpture holdings? Have we got lots of works by that artist? You know, what's that going to add to the story of the artist? And we have um, 
we've also got a real lack of hierarchy in terms of buying. So we don't just have the kind of the really mega wow factor things. So say we have a, a huge monumental sculpture. For us, it's just as important to have the preparatory drawing for that and also to have the maquette, you know, the mm. kind of the, the preparatory models that the artists are making. Because we like to think about the story of a work of art, but also the story of an artist. So we've got lots of works by uh, the sculptor Elizabeth Frink, but for us, we've got her prints as well because we feel that she's a very interesting printmaker. We've got her drawings. Um, and again, with that, with a lot so of... So basically, you also work as a patron that, for some artists. Exactly. And I would say that's right. And with that is much more obvious in the work that we do with, with younger artists who've just left art school. Um, so, for example, we have just... There's an artist that I have followed for quite a long time called Anna Lieber Lewis. I think she's... Um, a really, really interesting artist. She, we can talk a bit later about the prize that we run for young artists, but she won that a couple of years ago. And then within that, we support our, you know, we support the artists. So we've just funded a residency for her in conjunction with um, a, uh, it's, it's called Hestercombe in Somerset, which has got these kind of beautiful Georgian house, beautiful gardens. And it was, you know, it's just something that it's lovely to have for an artist to have headspace. So it's lovely to be able to give an artist time to go away to the country, beautiful gardens in Somerset, and just think for a week and read and kind of reconnect with themselves and their creativity. So you're absolutely right. There is that idea of patronage, that, but that probably extends more to the younger artists that we're working with. And why less of photography? <laughs> well, I suppose that, that comes from the, the core collection is modern British art is 20th century British art and really at that time the, that that media wasn't really part of the I suppose the artistic output so it was really much more um you know works on paper painting sculpture within the the young contemporary side of things that we do then we we have definitely included photographers young photographers in our exhibitions that we've run mm -hmm. and let's go to Eric Clapton and Leila <laughs>
Joe Waring in from England Collection. And Joe, you were saying that um, the way you approach collecting from specific artists is to have a more um, holistic approach by not only uh, purchasing the final product, but also see the whole process, the drawings, the preparation, and include these as part of your, of, of your collection. And um, the first question I have here is how you separate what is good art from what is great art, even from the same artist, because artists at times can be very productive. Um, it can be great, um, but not all works are equally amazing. Um, so there's good and great art. How can you possibly distinguish that? That's a really, really hard question. Thank you, Vasiliki. <laughs> I thought it was going so well. Um, no, it's, well, art is subjective, isn't it? It's completely subjective. And I think that's the point. And I, I feel that there shouldn't be, you know, art isn't didactic, so you shouldn't be able to say to people, this is good art, you know. And, and I feel that people should be able to make their own decisions about art. Um, and again, that's why I think I love sculpture so much. So, you know, you go to a normal art gallery and there's people have a way of going around a gallery, which I find really strange. Like they kind of whisper to each other and they talk and they read the label and stand in front of a painting for two seconds and then move on because almost as if they're wanting... You know, it's like, what is great about this? Whereas actually, if you go to a sculpture park, so say I've been to Yorkshire Sculpture Park recently, it's completely amazing because people, there isn't that kind of, there is a sense of reverence there, but it's not, you're not separate from the arts. It's part of your life. It's part of the, the kind of atmosphere. Your natural around. environment. Yeah, it's part of your natural environment. So you can engage with it in how you want. You know, there's children climbing all over it. People are taking selfies with the sculpture. And I suppose what makes art great is that it speaks to you. you know, and I really believe that... Art, you know, there are things, there are feelings that we have that we are unable to articulate. Mm. And actually, if you stand in front of a great painting or a great sculpture and it makes you feel something, then that's when it's a success. Well, sometimes art can be abstract and or it can be more conceptual art. So I was wondering whether there is a kind of a different uh, initial stimulation or some something might trigger your curiosity instead of an emotional uh, reaction, but trigger your curiosity and then kind of reveal slowly in a more uh, deep intellectual process. Yeah, definitely. There's an artist called Harrison Pierce that we um, are working with who's a, a really interesting young sculptor and he won our Ingram Collection Purchase Prize a couple of years ago again and he is is very much in that vein in terms of it's it's much more of an intellectual process. So you look at something and you think, like, what is going on here? And actually, the more you look at it, the more you spend time. It does it in it kind of engenders an emotional response. Absolutely, it's beautiful. The other sculpture that we've bought is beautiful to look at as well. But there's that also that intellectual dimension. So if you and that's what I think is really interesting about contemporary art is there are different levels. So you're able then to venture in at the level which you feel comfortable with. So like with Harrison, then we can talk about the idea around the work and they are um, it was based on the fact that he had some kind of brain scans and was very interested in the way that what the brain you know the brain waves and what they look like mm. and he you know went to sun and kind of was it very interested in all sorts of really scientific things and brings that into then a More contemporary the sculpture. Art and science yeah. yeah exactly so that and our artists have always been really interested in science and technology and that's what I find particularly fascinating about the period of 20th century British art because that's an, an area of huge social change but also technological upheaval you know this is the century it's very easy for us to forget that you know artists are responding to man being on the moon or the kind of you know those sort of lunar missions are incredibly interesting for them and they are engaged with that and also new technology so previously you know artists have been making sculpture they've been using bronze and marble and things like that but suddenly 
you know, there's there's aluminium that they can use and then or there's welded steel. And quite a lot of people are taking their experiences from the Second World War, you know, as welders and, and then turning that into some, something completely different. And then you've got kind of then it moves on and you've got, you know, Anthony Caro's really famously painting steel and taking it with a plinth and putting it on a floor. So, you know, it's really exciting. I think art is, is vibrant and exciting. And to think that it's separate from the world in which we live, I think, is wrong. You collect both modern and contemporary art. Uh, what is more challenging for you? Because with modern artists, you cannot meet the artists, you cannot engage, you cannot go into their mind. Uh, you have to research a lot and you may not figure out a lot. Uh, while with a contemporary artist, you have the ability to, to speak to them, to engage with them. Yeah. And, and get, get to know the information that you may like. So which, 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 what you would prefer more as an approach in the collection? What is... Uh, favorite well it's much easier when the artists have written you know about the work and that's it they can't change their mind so my experience I love working with artists and I do a lot of work where I'm you know um, interviewing artists and we do a lot of in conversations with artists and what I find is that they change their minds about the work so for example you know you can be in the studio and they might say well this piece was really inspired by when I went here and I saw this and then in the interview you'll say oh that's really interesting that was inspired by this and they'll just say no no, it's completely different. So people people are allowed to change their minds, obviously. But but you know, and, and things can be in flux. And also, you know, something that engages someone one day, they might they'll have moved on two months later, they're working on a new series and that does not interest them anymore, and they're interested in something else completely different. So it is much more uh, rewarding, obviously, working with artists and living artists and going to their studio, you know, it makes you feel alive in a way that I think it's quite I mean, I just, I absolutely love going to artist studios, but I think it's probably easier researching artists when they're dead. So you're kind of reading the literature that's been written about them. But also that in, in itself provides some problems. Sometimes it's a bit difficult to liaise with the artists uh, themselves yes. directly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had this experience yes. a few times. Yeah, no, it's exactly. So it's hard to get into. They may have a bad day, yes, you know, as everyone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right, because, you know, everyone's human. So you're kind of engaging with people and you expect. And I was talking to someone about that. You know, we expect a lot from artists nowadays. So we expect them to make incredible work, but we also expect them to sing for their supper. You know, they're expected to kind of be interviewed they're expected to go to art fairs they're expected to have their photo taken you know to be able to go and socialize promote and market that's right exactly so we expect a huge amount from them and and is that fair you know and then where no and i think it's distracting from the actual work i think if picasso had to do so much he wouldn't be able to be picasso (laughs) yeah i know but you know they can't they're expected to kind of go off and kind of be this creative in a you know and, and find the space and the inspiration to make work but yet at the same time you know take a group of VIPs around their latest show and explain why they made this kind of certain thing. I think it's really tricky for them. It is really tricky and for them and for us. And let's go to the next track and we will discuss a little bit more about artists and art fairs and the market. My love. My lover, 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 I'm in paradise whenever I'm with you. My mind, my mind, my my, my, my mind, well, it's a paradise whenever I'm with you. Ride on, on. I will ride on down the road, I will find you, I will hold you, I'll be there. It's long, long. it's a mighty long road, but I'll find you, I will hold you, and I'll be there. Between the song and that I feel it I know you heard it 
Why? <laughs> so I love George Ezra and it's just singing. singing it was an dancing. amazing, happy song. A lovely yeah, song yeah, chosen yeah. by my children um, because it just reminds me of sort of dancing around the kitchen with them. Well, that's a very nice image to have. <laughs> Probably not if you'd actually seen it. <laughs> um, and we were talking about uh, artists and how demanding the society has become towards them where they need to promote and market themselves. And it's a little bit of a of a branding, one could say. So we tend to, to my experience, collect works uh, that have a, a signature, you know, that's recognizable. It has a stamp of the artist. You can see immediately and say, oh, this is um, um, Picasso, this is Antonio Caro, this is the one, this is the other. How do you deal with that as a collection? 
I mean, do you collect from a variety of times from an artist, a variety of body of works? Do you support this uh, uh, changing of approach the artist may have? I mean, I've, I've met uh, artists who started as sculptors and, turn, and they wanted to be painters. Uh, what they lost completely um, what it was recognizable at the time. So how do you deal with this? So absolutely, we buy works that go across the artist's career. And I think you're, you're completely right to say that there are bodies of work within an artist's career which perhaps the market might favor or perhaps are more academic, considered more academically important. Potentially that might be when, you know, there's a, obviously a, in kind of post-war um, Britain, uh, after the war, you know, a lot of people went abroad. So, that, and especially with the kind of influx of abstract expressionism, you know, in the 50s in America, that kind of, you know, that, that famous show at the Tate. So obviously that kind of changed things. And, and you know, there may be sort of bodies of work that were created around the 50s and 60s, which are considered very important academically and which fetch more money at auction or at galleries but equally art, the artists were making work before that and then they went on to make work and actually there are artists within the period that we buy specifically because they do change so for example um, there's an artist called William Gear who's not that well known but was making these very interesting abstract paintings and working with a European um, abstract abstract group called Cobra uh, in the 50s and yet before that he, he was making these really figurative works when he was at art school and after art school he's making figurative works so we think it's important to buy both those early figurative works and then the abstract works for which he's better known as and again with an artist like Terry Frost who's a, a very well-known modern British artist he actually went between figuration and abstraction throughout his career so we've got a very early figurative self-portrait and then he's um, obviously very well known for those um, very abstract pieces inspired by St Ives and the Cornish landscape and the seascape but at the same time, he's always making those figurative works. So we also thought it was important to buy a later figurative self-portrait as well. So, as I said, within the collection, because it's publicly displayed, we're trying to we're trying to explain that artists' work does change over the course of their career, and that's absolutely fine. And we've got a really early Bridget Riley, which is a figurative work, which is mm. really really interesting because obviously with Bridget Riley, you know, she's, you have a very specific expectation. Yeah, you have a very specific expectation. If someone says you've got a Bridget Riley, that people know what what to expect. And actually, this piece is early, and it's a really beautiful drawing of a woman at a tea table in the sun. And I suppose once you know what comes later, you can see the lines as a kind of precursor to that. The way that she's depicted the sun and the shadows on the woman's tea table and the and the paper um, at breakfast, but. Yeah, I think it's really important to showcase um, the whole of an artist's output. And support also And this, support that as well, yeah. The change, because there are many yeah. artists who are concerned with the galleries and, you know, because mm. they sell specific um, artwork that they're known for. So the mm. galleries, they put pressure on them, you know, the clients and the collectors want that. I think that's, So it's yeah. very restricting, in at least psychologically and practically, to produce new work and f move further yeah. because what is demanded is uh, completely different. I think you're right. And, and perhaps that old style model of, of a dealer supporting the artist throughout their career has changed because in the number of conversations that I've had with contemporary artists at the moment, it's exactly that. It's, you know, your first show is a great success. It's a sellout. But you're not going to make the same thing again, are you, for the next show two years later? You, you're interested in different things. And it may be that your style has changed. And quite a lot of people then have said that, that you know, the dealers have turned around and said, I'm sorry, we, we, can't, we can't work with you anymore. We can't put this show on. Because we not sell. Because we know that it's not as 
commercial as what went before? Can you make more of, of what went before? And, At the and same time, the market is changing. So most of yeah. the artists I know, they had sold out shows few years ago and now it's not happening even that's true exactly so there's that as well but I think you know at the moment being an artist is incredibly hard and so that's why I mean I've kind of alluded to it um previously in the conversation but we set up a prize called the Young Contemporary Talent Purchase Prize Mm -hmm. which is exactly that which is designed to support artists who are coming out of art school because there's a real breakdown between when artists leave art school and them kind of having been picked up by a mid-career gallery because there are all those sort of younger galleries that were doing great work with with emerging artists and you know they've all had to close their their doors which is such a shame so we're trying to to help artists who were in that midpoint between art school and being and being picked up by a supportive gallery or dealer okay uh have two questions uh <laughs> go on go on uh, you know while we talk things yeah. and thoughts evolve all the time and um are you are you supporting emerging artists but there is a there is a movement lately in supporting artists so supporting arts independently of the art mm-hmm. uh, by some criteria uh, like uh, being a female artist because they have been uh, underrepresented through all the years uh, um, or um, artists of color or um, from the LGBTQ uh, movement and mm. um, do, do you have this as an as an approach or you just focus on the art uh, no matter of the other criteria we focus on the art but it's really important to me that it's a very broad offering and that we are absolutely inclusive in in the exhibitions that we run and the artists that we support mm-hmm. so what we do is we uh, it's me and a group of other people are on the selection committee for our prize and we put together a short list of about, it's normally about 20 to 25 artists who are the finalists who, who get an exhibition in the Cello Factory in Waterloo. And within that, what we'll, we will do is we'll select the art based purely on the artworks and then I'll look at the biography and say, mm. okay, is, is this reflective of the, of the world in which we are living at the moment? And invariably it is because art schools are really diverse and, and it's not just limited to British artists. So our prize is open to people who have studied at a UK art school. And actually that's a, it's actually a really international demographic. Mm. So I have not needed to make any amendments to that purely, I suppose, from the, from the demographic in which we're picking from. But if there was a problem, if it was, you know, if it went too much in any direction, I think you have to make sure that it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not going too far in, in any direction, I think. But yeah, we, we are, we're, you know, we're very kind of supportive and inclusive of everything. Let's go to Nina Simone and I put a spell on you. Oh yeah, I love it, Nina. <laughs> Perfect, and, thank you. Uh, back with the next uh, hot question for Joe Barring. <laughs> thank you. put a spell on you Cause you're mine do, 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 do. You better stop the things you do I ain't lying You know I can't stand it 
getting tighter <laughs> <laughs> and I still have so many questions to Joe Baring and the Ingram oh. collection and off the mic we're saying that actually the Ingram collection has uh, more works of female artists that's right so I forgot when we were talking um, just now about um, you know, demographics that actually exactly that the Ingram collection the majority of our works are by female artists which was not by design but it's a very happy accident I think mm-hmm. I think I just don't know maybe it's because that again so I talked earlier about the, the 20th century being a, a time of real social change and I think mm. that that's when women were able to pursue careers as artists so that's something that I find particularly interesting is watching that you know the social changes and you know there's artists at the beginning of the period that we're talking about so someone like Eileen Agar a very famous surrealist um, who went off to Paris she was able to make work because she came from a very privileged background and she had her own money so was able to do that but obviously Um, quite a lot of the artists are you know weren't that was not an option for them but as as you go across the century then people are able to make careers as artists and women are able to pursue that so I think that's reflected in in the works that we've bought in the collection how many works do you purchase per, per year more or less how does oh, that work yeah it totally changes so it used to be is so, it best due to a specific budget you allocate per year uh, no we don't have a budget and so what we do is so right at the beginning of the collection Chris you know, bought a lot of works and was really building and going at quite a ferocious pace. That has slowed down now because now we are, I would say, more infilling. So for us, it's important to look at the collection as a whole and say, right, we've got an outstanding preeminent collection of British sculpture. So let's improve that. So let's make it the best collection of of, of British sculpture. Or, as I said, we're buying younger artists. And that, again, we don't have a budget for that. We we buy artists that we like and that we want to support. 
Um, but yeah, it's, you know, we're in a very lucky position. It's a great side of the art world to be in the buying, you know, buying yeah. and supporting. It's really good. <laughs> Having worked for an auction house, you know, to be on the other side is, it's, it's a real That's privilege. That's what the next question is. Thank yeah. you very much for mentioning the auction house. So you work for uh, Christie's? That's for... right. I worked for Christie's for a really long time. So I did a year at Sotheby's and then uh, was at Christie's for a long time and ended up as a director and was, um, yeah, I ran the modern British department at Christie's South Ken, which was really interesting. And, you know, I love South Ken. They've closed it now, but the joy of Christie South Ken was that you'd you'd handle works. So I think there's a real difference between learning art history and academically and then actually handling works, you know, taking them out, seeing them, looking at the gouache up close, looking at the pencil, the, the work, um, you know, the paint marks and really getting a sense of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's really underrated at the moment. And I, I, I think people are too far away from the art, which is a shame. And um, the collection purchases most of the work from auction houses, art fairs, uh, the artists themselves. Uh, how does it work mainly? What is your main... Yeah, so with the when we're buying from young artists, we buy directly from the artist, absolutely. And when when adding to the... I forgot British... the art dealer. Yes, Sorry, exactly. No, no, I'm an art dealer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've got relationships with a few art dealers um, that we know and trust and that they know us and they know what we're looking for. So so we, as I, as I said earlier, you know it used to be that you had to be really proactive and go out and look for things and source things and now really people know so if there's a particular thing that they, they'll come to us and say we think this would really work well for the collection um we buy from auction houses yeah from dealers from art fairs uh it, you know chris used to go off and you know at the weekend he'd be down in guildford and would would kind of produce an invoice on the monday morning of something he'd bought um you know and we also buy we're very interested in not just the glamorous side of the art world but also artist process so we buy a lot from um charities like big issues which supports um women in the criminal justice system and the Kersler trust which is art made by prisoners so again we buy those works we get let the collection be used for people say with um working with mental health issues or, or kind of younger children and we, we buy those works as well so as I said there's a total lack of hierarchy in the collection for us it's about the joy of art but also art as process so the value in making art to help people mm -hmm. and before we close uh, unfortunately and go to the commitments <laughs> <laughs> which is going to be our last track um, you have some parallel activities with Ingram uh, Collection Joe uh, would you like to make a very brief summary and at the end tell me about women in the arts oh yes so things I do outside of the Ingram Collection mm -hmm. yes yeah, so I, um, I have lots of different fingers and lots of different pies and wear, wear lots of hats so well, you created also masterpiece sculpture I, I mean did, we definitely did right. your we love for sculpture about that. No? yeah so exactly so masterpiece and that's it kind of again something we haven't talked about is is you know the idea of an art fair but also curating it at art fair so yeah i created the sculpture series the inaugural sculpture series at masterpiece this year which was really interesting and for that i tried to showcase younger artists and women artists and um make things a bit surprising for people i am working on a podcast on women sculptors mm. which is really exciting um showcasing um people like barbara hepworth and elizabeth frink but also working um and interviewing contemporary female sculptors like philida barlow rana begum so that should be interesting uh just kind of yes i can't really think but we i had rana in the studio did you have rana mm -hmm. oh fabulous mm -hmm. so exactly so so kind of lots of things but i suppose i also um Yeah, I'm involved in something called um, the Association of Women in the Arts, which I think is incredible, really supportive. And I, I um, recently, they do a, a, a mentoring walk and talk. Um, and so I 
volunteered as a mentor for that. And I think it's really important to How create. do they support women in the arts? So, well, so what is the... it's about creating a network, I think a safe network for people to raise issues and questions about things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you put it, there's a, there's a kind of a wealth of experience in the room. So um, it's organized that you do a walk and talk because I think the feeling is that when you're mentoring more someone, peripatetic kind yeah, of the old fashioned right. <laughs> exactly and then you know uh, and I get it but it's really valuable being a mentor as well because then it makes you a realize kind of what you've got to offer and the experiences that you've had but equally it goes the other way so you can ask them questions and I'm kind of opening up other ideas and avenues for you but I definitely I kind of give a lot of my time two things like that to mentoring and that's something that we offer in the for our younger artists as well we do professional development and mentoring and I feel that the art world is um it's an ecosystem you know it's delicately balanced and we all have to do our best to, to help it and, and give back to it. Do you think that the art market is kind of corroded this kind of ecology in so somehow? <laughs> I love the way you've asked me that when we've got about 10 seconds left yeah, to go. No. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's a really difficult question. I think that everything has its place within within the art world. There are different, definitely different sections within the art world, you know, so and I kind of feel like I'm straddling lots of different ones. So for as I said, you know, we're off kind of buying work made by the big issues by by women in, in prison and supporting those. And at the same time, you know, going to freeze New York and, and looking at very, various things. And, and there's, a, there's a huge disconnect between those things. And it's, you know, and I guess for me, it's finding my way through that. And I feel like the Ingram collection and all the other activities that I do enable me to balance that. Mm -hmm. Job barring, the commitments, uh, why the commitments? Again, this is another Irish thing. So the commitments <laughs> kind of listening to it um, on repeat as a teenager and just loving the film and loving the soundtrack. And really, I could have put a pin in the soundtrack and picked any one of the songs but I um, I just particularly like this one where can we see the Ingram yes yeah, so our next action. major show is at the Farrens and Hull and it's what I talked about earlier in that we are really keen to not just showcase it in London so for me it's very important to showcase it regionally so we were up in Sheffield last year Berwick and we are um, we've given it a Brexit twist actually so um, ah. yeah yeah um, Joe Baring, thank you very well, thank much. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun, Vasiliki. Uh, thank it, you. It was a great pleasure indeed. Uh, gen ladies and gentlemen, uh, have a lovely day. <laughs>